Well, if you guys, um, <clears throat> if you saw the weekly update video that we sent out this past week, uh, I'll be preaching in Ecclesiastes this morning. If you, if you don't get those weekly update videos and you want to, let me know after the service. I can set you up with that. It'll only take just a second. But I am really excited to begin preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, it's written by Solomon. We'll talk a little bit more about Solomon writing the book of Ecclesiastes in the next sermon that comes up. But uh, it was written about 940 to 930 B.C. in the last decade of his reign as king in Jerusalem. And he's an old man at this point, right? He's looking back on, on a very colorful past and, and a life where uh, he's done some things right, he's done some things wrong. And it's, it's wisdom, you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's taking a look at, at how things are, right? And the point of the book, the overall point of the book, is that God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. And the person who understands and accepts and appreciates that can actually experience great joy in this life. Even in the midst of all the complications life gives us. Now, Ecclesiastes a lot of times is criticized for being a joyless book. One commentator even says it has the smell of the tomb about it. But real joy, biblical joy, true joy, is a joy that thinks deeply, that's not afraid to feel. It's, it's not a joy that, that, that pretends there's nothing but joy. Christians don't have to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. We can experience true joy and have this kind of joy because we can look at the world how it really is and still smile the book of Ecclesiastes does have a really heavy and negative tone to it, though. There's really no way around that. It forces us to deal with the way that the world really is and what life is really like. And the truth is that it's full of disappointment and angst and, and, and futility and frustration. That's, and that's not me being a glasses-half-empty kind of guy. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. But seriously, I mean, you don't ever feel a little aimless in life? I, I'm... Haven't you ever wondered if your life even matters in the grand scheme of things? And I mean, we all, we're all adults, right? We, we know that the world is not rated G. We've all seen the horrors that men are capable of. Have you ever seen or done or, or even heard about something so unimaginably wicked that you had to like force it out of your thinking just because it's that disturbing? I mean, if you, let's get real. Have you not had your fill of tragedy? That's what this life is. A tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. That's not to say life doesn't have its high points. But what's inevitable, the inevitable truth that we all try as hard as we can to ignore is that whatever come, goes up must come back down. That's the world that we live in as a result of the fall. We made our bed in sin in the garden, and we have to lie in it. Life is a letdown in a lot of ways, and we spend a lot of time and energy and even money trying to convince ourselves that it's not. You know, we have to give ourselves little pep talks and find our, our value and worth and, and meaning and material things like entertainment or work or sex or drugs or anything that will distract us even for a minute 
from the reality that we're on this Ferris wheel that just keeps going around and around and around, and the only way off is death. We all know it, and we all try to medicate it or cure it with material things because we're divorced from spiritual things. And it's a drag. That's what we see here. That's the tone of this book. That's the the tension that Solomon invites us into. But here's the beauty of the book and why it's arguably my favorite book of the Bible. It sobers us up from our intoxication with the world and worldly things. It forces us to see through it all. We see a man, King Solomon, who had it all and realized it wasn't enough. He recognizes he has a thirst that can't be quenched by anything under the sun. You're going to hear that phrase used 29 times in the book, so listen out for it. It seriously is like the key to understanding the book. Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest man that ever lived, who had everything, everything a man could ever want, wisdom just beyond imagining, unfathomable riches, scores of beautiful women, unrivaled power, and the adoration of all of his people. He had everything, and he he realizes that it's temporary, and it's fleeting, and it's all absolutely meaningless. And it brings him to a point where he has to say, there has to be something more. Like, why am I here? Why is any of this here? Why am I even alive? What's the, the meaning or purpose of it all? It's all just so pointless. And so what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes is he lets you have what you want. He lets you have the world on your terms. He lets you imagine a life and a world without God. But it's not meant to be enjoyed that way. And it can't be. And in the final chapters, he provides some relief to the madness and the confusion and the hopelessness that you inevitably feel when you try to enjoy God's world without him in it. Before we can make sense of the senselessness of the world, we have to stop pretending that we can make sense of it without God, the one who made it. So let's read Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses, sort of the introductory, what sets the stage, sets it up for the whole book. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. The words of the preacher, the son of David... King in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. 
This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is shaping up to be all sunshine and rainbows, isn't it? Bit of a bummer. But we know the end from the beginning, don't we? You know, I mean, we only have to borrow this point of view. We don't have to live in it. We can, we can sort of take off our, our night vision goggles, if you will, set them down, you know, our night vision goggles that allow us to see life and the world through faithful eyes. And we get to look around and see things as they appear without the hope of the gospel. Things look pretty bleak. And so the beauty of the book, as I said before, is it sobers us up from our intoxication with worldly things, and it creates in us a longing for heavenly realities. It alerts us to the fact that we want something that cannot be had, but because we want it, it must exist. It must. It has to be out there somewhere. Because we know the end from the beginning, it points us to Jesus. It answers the question, is this all there is? And the answer is no. This is not all there is. Because all that is, is not under the sun. There's so, so much more. Not only does it give us hope and help us to cope with the difficulties of life, it motivates us to live this life to its fullest. It allows us to enjoy all the little things this life affords us, recognizing they come from God who holds all things together. We can know that what we do in this life does actually matter, and that should bring us great joy. Now, I want us to be responsible with God's word here, because I'm, I'm, I'm saying... We should be able to look at Ecclesiastes and feel joyful, but people often say that it's not a joyful book, and I've already laid out for you, it is a little bit depressing, it's a little bit of a drag, it's a little bit of a bummer, because it's real. And remember, real joy comes from a place where we're mature enough to think deeply and to allow ourselves to feel, right? I want us to be responsible with God's word as we look at Ecclesiastes. We're not going to just go through it and try to polish everything up and make it look pretty where what we're supposed to see is misery. The pain and the misery is a teacher, and we can't learn our lesson by ignoring our teacher. We, we can't try to remove the sting. It's supposed to sting, and we have to let Solomon take us on this quest for meaning and experience the disappointments and the letdowns. So his big reveal has the intended impact that he has for us. This is written by a king who did everything right, tried it God's way, he tried it his own way. And now he's looking back on a life, he reflects on his life, and he gives his conclusion, and here it is. It's the main idea of the sermon this morning. You cannot find meaning in creation without knowing the creator. You cannot find meaning in creation without knowing the creator. There's a lot of things we can learn by observation, right? We know, for instance, that trees inhale what we exhale, and we inhale what they exhale. That's amazing. We know that the tides are governed by our moon. Also pretty cool. We know which way the earth spins. We know we can predict the weather. And we can even examine a child in his mother's womb before he is ever born. 
we used to not be able to do that. The technology has allowed us to be able to do that. You know, my wife Amanda, she's, she's gotten into this show, Call the Midwife, Call the Midwives, I don't know which it is. Um, but I, she, it's like what she watches when I'm doing something else, so I haven't really caught up with it much. But it, it takes place in a time before ultrasound technology. And so every birth, and there's one every episode, as best I can tell, Every birth is a surprise, right? It's like, oh, we have a boy. Like, we didn't see it coming. Or even better, right? It's twins. How's that for a surprise? Didn't see that coming. Now we got to go buy another set of all the stuff, you know? But we can learn a lot by observation. And, and, and what ultrasound technologies has allowed us to do is to actually peer in there to get some of those answers, to be able to observe things that at one time were unobservable. That's, that's amazing. We can learn a lot by observation. Science and observation can help us see what's there and tell us how it works. But what it can never do is tell us why. It can't tell us why it works. Why, why is it that way? Why does that happen? Why am I here? Why... When a fruit is at its ripest, when it's the best it'll ever be, I kill it by picking it and eating it. And when I put its seed in the dirt, new life springs up out of the ground. That story's familiar to me. I've heard that one before. New life coming out of death. But if you haven't heard that story, you don't know that story, you can observe all the things and possess all the wisdom and knowledge of how everything works and it just won't matter. You cannot find meaning in creation without knowing the creator. Solomon had his fill of the world and he calls it all vanity. And the Hebrew word there is hebel. And the reason I mention that is because it's, it's mentioned 39 times in the book. 38 times, excuse me. What's the other word or phrase you're supposed to be looking out for? Under the sun. That one's mentioned 29 times in the book. This hebel word for vanity is used 38 times, and it's used five times in verse 2 alone. And you may remember when we're preaching through the Old Testament, we'll often mention that when a Hebrew author wants to emphasize something, he doesn't have exclamation points, right? There's no, exclama no exclamation points. And so what he does when a Hebrew author wants to emphasize something is he repeats it. When a Hebrew author wants to really emphasize something, he repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. Vanity, 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 he says over and over again. It means breath, it, fleeting, transient, meaningless, senseless, futile. Solomon looks around at creation in his own life and says, it's all absurd. It is an affront to reason. This is the wisest man who ever lived. And he says, it's not just that life is hard to understand. It cannot be understood. Nothing lasts and nothing has any real substance to it. Can you feel his frustration? A man works his whole life and for what? He's just going to die anyway. And he can't take it with him. The sun goes up and down, up and down, up and down, doing the same thing every day. The streams all run to the sea, but it never fills up. The eye never sees enough. The ear never hears enough. Anything that happens has happened already, and there's no such thing as over. I mean, when does it end? What is the point? Where's this all going? Like, what, where's the climax? Where's the crescendo? Where, where, 
Where's the resolution? Solomon observes a busy world hurrying up to get nowhere. It's like a song that just keeps repeating the chorus over and over again, and it just won't end. Imagine, y'all, watching the world and all of its cycles, observing all of its repeating patterns, and then finally getting down to you. Generations come and then die and are replaced. You will die and be replaced. The wind will keep blowing, the world will keep turning, and while the sun sets only to rise again, you are marching steadily toward the grave. You end. That's devastating for a person who believes he will not rise again. But those of us who are being saved, we follow in our Redeemer's footsteps, and he walked out of the grave. You can't make sense of life and death or find meaning in creation without knowing the Creator. Two points this morning. And these two points are really more general to the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole by way of introduction to the book, but they're certainly evident here in these first 11 verses. The first is, earthly things cannot satisfy heavenly appetites. And heavenly appetites presuppose a heavenly feast. Earthly things cannot satisfy heavenly appetites. And heavenly appetites presuppose a heavenly feast. You cannot be satisfied with your own interaction with the world and with your own experience of it. And it bums us out. Try as we may. There is purpose and joy in life when understood in relationship to God, though. It's God that gives meaning to to work, to the enjoyments of food and drink, to the enjoyments of physical pleasure. And we know that all those things can be corrupted and ruinous apart from acknowledgement of and relationship with the God who made them. Because we turn those things into God themselves, don't we? And and we serve them, expecting them to, to afford us something that they were never intended to. We want lasting peace and security and enjoyment from these things. And when they don't deliver, it bums us out. We get depressed or we just go try to find fulfillment in something else that's not God. But it never works. That's what Solomon has observed, and it hasn't worked well for him. And that's what he wants his people to know. He's imparting wisdom in the form of warning to them. And he starts off saying in verse 3, he says, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? You can almost hear Jesus here, can't you? What, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? You know, I mean, you look at how you, you work and you, you strive and you put your all and everything into something. And what do you end up with in the end? Nothing. What's the point? Whatever you do doesn't last, and neither do you. Verse 4, that's what he says. He says, generation comes and goes. There's nothing permanent or seemingly significant about a life. The earth lasts, and a life doesn't. It's like a breath in the grand scheme of things. You're here for a moment, and then you're gone. And while you're here, you busy yourself with things that you think are just so important, but they're really not. Are they? 
Time marches on with or without you. And it seems to not really care if you're here or not. Verse 5, it says, the sun hastens to rise again. The Hebrew word there is pants. You get this idea of like the sun's like panting to catch up to the place where it rises again. And you, what you see here is this repeating circular pattern that the sun has. But that, by contrast, man's pattern is a straight line to the grave. Verses 6 and 7, it says, the winds and the streams, they keep blowing and flowing in a never-ending rhythm. But yet man lives a short time and then he's gone. We watch our plans get frustrated every day, don't we? All the while, God's plan, these patterns we see, always go according to plan. Creation is orchestrated by him and he keeps it going, even though it seems like background noise to us a lot of the time because we just get so used to it and take it for granted. God shows us his power every day and how he keeps the earth's heart beating. We saw a little piece of that in Psalm 19 this morning. All the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And he does it, he keeps this earth going and beating and orchestrating all of these things this way. He does it because it's the stage, it's the, it's the place where the drama of his story of redemption is being carried out. And it's a drama, a story that he writes himself into, doesn't he? The world is starving for a hero, and one is born. He bravely sacrifices himself to save the world, and just when everybody thinks it was for nothing, he rises again from the de dead in order to bring hope for a sequel. God has plans for the world and for you. It's not for nothing. People say we're not here for a long time, we're here for a good time. And so what they do is they, they try to solve what they may or may not recognize as an eternal problem with temporary things. And it just never works out. You can't fit a square peg in a round hole. Verse 80 says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot even utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There's nothing we can take in through our sense experience, through our five senses, that can satisfy our spiritual hunger. There's nothing that seems to hit the spot. There's nothing that, that soothes our, our aches for meaning or scratches that, the itch of curiosity we have for truth. Earthly things can't fill the emptiness that we feel and that we have to be able to admit is just, it's just a part of human existence. And it, like whatever it is for you, it can't ease our minds or bring us peace. Because what can material things offer a guilty conscience? What exists out there that can cleanse a sin-stained heart? That's what we're groaning for. The material things we go after, they only bring momentary pleasure. They do do that, right? They'll allow us to forget about our guilt for a few minutes, but it never really goes away. We want meaning, and we want truth, and we want to make sense of things, but the, the farthest we ever can seem to get is just what is. We never get to the why. It's just what is. And the, 
what is bores us to tears, and so we go looking for something new, but there's nothing new. There's nothing new. There's nothing better. Verses 9 and 10, it says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there any such thing as something new? Is there anything where somebody can say, see, this is new? He says, no, it's already been in the ages before us. What he's What he's bringing us into here is this idea, there's nothing to look forward to. That's the sense of desperation here. There's nothing to look forward to, there's nothing to get excited about, there's nothing worth holding out for. And that's true. That's what you're left with when you try to enjoy God's world without him in it. Nothing to look forward to. Nothing worth holding out for. And you look back at verse 11 there, you can read it with me, but that, that can actually be read. There's no remembrance of earlier men, nor of the men who came later. And this goes back to that temporariness idea, that fleeting idea about life. Your greatest achievements, we all want to leave a dent in the world, right? We want to make our mark. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Your greatest achievements will be forgotten, and so will you. Whatever monument they write your name on, if somebody doesn't tear it down, the weather will fade it away. It will be forgotten. How far back can you trace your ancestors? A great-great-grandparent? Maybe one more than that? I know a guy, i got a good friend who's a minister up near Florence, South Carolina. He's got a better beat on his ancestry than just about anybody I know. And even he can only go back like a couple hundred years, maybe, maybe 300 But what about every life before that? Did their name matter? Did their life matter? That's the point Solomon's trying to make, is is in in as little as five or six generations, your name will be gone from the earth and you will not be remembered. So what lasting significance does it really have? Well, it doesn't. Again, if you're imagining a world that exists from, apart from God governing it, it doesn't. We can't begin to understand the world God has made and all the things in it, including us, while leaving him out of the equation. So all together here, in the opening of Ecclesiastes, we see that time marches on, paying no mind to us, and even whether we're here or, or not, and also that nothing seems to satisfy. And that's because, point number two, Heavenly appetites presuppose a heavenly feast. One of the things critics will say when they come to the book of Ecclesiastes is like, where's Christ in this? Where's Christ in this book? Well, here he is. This is the world that Christ came to save. This is the fallen place that God himself came and inhabited. This is the frustrated existence he subjected himself to so that he could bring you out of it and into a world where nothing is ordinary and everything is new. God is the one that put that craving for eternity in each one of us. And later in this book, in chapter 3, it even says that. We see that. that God has put eternity into man's heart. And we're supposed to look around and see that nothing material, nothing made, nothing under the sun can satisfy that craving. We're supposed to recognize our supernatural 
cravings and be able to look around and see that there's nothing natural that can satisfy them. We have heavenly appetites that should point us to heavenly realities. C.S. Lewis once said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I'll read you the whole quote because it's too good not to. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And he says, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I could spend the rest of the day trying to explain it better than that. I just can't. I mean, it really gets down to it. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy that deep desire we all have in us but only to arouse it, to make us hungry for that something else, to make us look around for something that we can't find under the sun so that we'll look up. And that thing, of course, is not a thing at all. It's not a created thing. It is the creator himself who is outside of creation. And the only thing, the only way that we can have him is to be like him. You know, holy, righteous, pure, blameless, spotless. And we're not. Something has to be done to remove our guilt. Someone has to live righteously for us because we don't. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplished for us. And because he did, we can make sense of a seemingly senseless world knowing that he is in control. And while nothing seems to go according to our plans, it is always going according to his. And he is driving all of human experience to a determined end. And here's the bonus. In the last day after the final resurrection, when all the saints of God are joined together with him, there will be a celebration feast. You know, this is something that the Bible points, points us to constantly. In the Old Testament, you know, we're all waiting for this, this Messiah to come and it, that's going to set everything right, that's going to turn the world right side up again, that's going to uh, judge the wicked, who's going to vindicate the righteous, who's going to uh, set everything right again so that God can come and dwell with man the way that he did in the garden. And we get this idea of this, this feast, one of the places in Isaiah 25. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Hebrews repeat things when they want to emphasize them. Yes? 
and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all the peoples, the veil that's spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And when Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And in Revelation, an angel says to John in a vision, he says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is a feast in heaven. There is a wedding feast waiting for us. Not when you die. That's not when it happens. But when Christ has vanquished all his enemies in the earth and everyone who has ever died rises from the dead, the guilty are cast into the lake of fire, and the ones, Christ's church, his bride, the ones that he came to live and die and bleed for, they are joined with him and walk down the aisle with him into eternal paradise. That wedding reception is going to be the best there ever was or ever will be. Those of us like me that don't like dancing at weddings will dance. The food will be like something you've never tasted under the sun. The wine's going to be good, y'all. That's what we're hungry for. Perfect, untarnished, unfettered, uninterrupted, untainted communion with God. That's what we're starving for. And we can't have it under the sun, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And all the little things here that we know don't ultimately satisfy us, we can still enjoy them, and more so when we realize who they come from and that they are meant to point us to him and whet our appetites for something more. Heavenly appetites presuppose a heavenly feast, and one is promised to those who are a new creation in Jesus Christ. That does not mean, however that there's no enjoyment here or that it's unholy to find enjoyment in the things that God has made. You know, I think a lot of unbelievers, I, I certainly thought this when I was an unbeliever, that Christians were all just sort of like stoic, stuffy, stick-in-the-mud, goody-two-shoes types that don't know how to have any fun. But becoming a Christian doesn't mean going to the time-out chair. It's not separating yourself from enjoying things under the sun. It's recognizing that everything under the sun has its limits. They have a purpose. Understanding creation in light of knowing the creator answers the why, right? The what's it all for? Those enjoyments are there because God put them there, and he called them good. He intends for you to enjoy them, but they're only good insofar as you understand how he intends for them to be enjoyed. They're not supposed to fill you up. He is. They're not supposed to be a place of refuge for you. He is. They're not supposed to be the place where you find your worth and your value and, your, and, and, and meaning. He is. And they certainly will not keep you from certain death. He will. He will. You can look all over creation for answers to your burning questions about life 
and truth and meaning and significance, but you won't find the answers. Not down here. Not under the sun. You cannot find meaning in creation without knowing the one who created it. And he has allowed for us to know him. By sacrificing his only son and indwelling us by his Holy Spirit, who reveals his will for us in our lives and the world that he made through his word. And look at how he's blessed us. This transcendent God that is so so high above all of his creation, so outside of his own creation, so other than his creation, that even though we were undeserving, loved us enough to make himself known to us and to draw near to us. Sometimes we can't get a good grip on that or wrap our heads around that unless we consider the alternative first. That's the alternative Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes. It allows us to imagine a world, the things that we want to enjoy so much, and it shows us how meaningless it all really is without him. So we sober up from our intoxication with the world and we come to God with our hands up and say, I surrender. I've had enough. Give me all of you instead. Teach me your ways. And praise God, he promises he will not turn anyone away who does that very thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, you are your ways are not our ways and our ways are not your ways. You're holy, you're wise, you're all good. Lord, we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve your mercy, we don't even deserve the little blessings that we have down here, but you give them to us freely. God, I pray that you would cause us to take take stock, take inventory, to take a look around with eyes wide open and see that we live in a world you made. We live in a world that you are in control of. So even when we're frustrated with our circumstances and things aren't going the way that we had hoped, we would stop and we would bless your holy name because if it weren't for you, we would not have another breath. Help us to take stock and inventory this morning, Lord, as we go home, as we spend time in our community groups, as we spend time with our families. Help us to take stock of what is good in our lives. And may you strengthen us by your spirit to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.